invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter 8. Valerie told me while we were singing, she said, one year ago you candidated here <laughs> on this weekend. And uh, so it's been quite a year, hasn't it? And uh, I told Valerie, I said, if you're a student of church history sometimes, especially Baptist history in England, um, one of my friends pastored a church in London, and any new pastoral candidate they had had to preach on trial for six months. Six months. And I told Valerie, I said, wow, I said, we're in old England. I might just now be getting the job <laughs> after a year, after a year. I don't know if that's a, I have a lot, a lot of thoughts about that. Six-month trial. I mean, you would, you would definitely know if a guy had any good sermons by then. And... Uh, <laughs> It wouldn't really depend on one particular sermon, but thanks to the good old internet, you know, you can go online, and I have about a thousand sermons on Sermon Audio. You can go and hear a thousand sermons. You can hear my voice change if you want to go online, and start with 2011 and hear me squeaking it out all the way to, uh, to, this, uh, to this monstrosity I have today. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, if you have a an ESV Bible, you'll see these headings are all ripped off from them. And I, I, I did that because there are so many things to say in Romans chapter 8, I didn't quite know how to break it down into, uh, into an outline. And so I just thought, well, I'll just steal their headings. And uh, this sermon today is probably more like a running commentary than the kind of sermon I normally give, which you may, you may respond with, that's what you always do, is running commentary. But to me, it's very different, you know. <laughs> uh, you ever go out and clean up the garage, and you've really made some kind of massive modification out there, and you go inside and say, hey, honey, come look at the garage, because that's what all men do, right? Come look at what I did. And she comes out there, and she goes, what did you do? You're like, don't you see that I relocated all the aerosol cans to one place? They're all together, there's the lubricants, there's the paints, there's the starting fluids, and she's like, what? <laughs> and so that may be what you're experiencing today. <laughs> Romans 1, let's read, let's look at 1, 8, 1 to 11. Now, in the end of chapter 7 ends with this conflict that Paul says he has. I have this body of death, there is this old nature that is plaguing me, the fallen nature is really giving me a hard time because I want to do good. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to live a holy and clean life. But it's like there's a law, like there's a program running in the background that when I want to do good, I do the bad. And this is really frustrating me, which causes him to say in the last verse of chapter, 20, chapter 7, verse, next to last verse, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now, Albert Barnes says that this body of death... Uh, could have been a, an illustration Paul was using be, uh, that was in the time that Paul lived, some of, the, um, some of the heathen kings, if they had somebody they didn't like, a captive or somebody who had fallen into ill favor with them, they would kill somebody and then chain the living person to the dead person. Then they had to live with that until either they died or you know, something came loose and they could get free. You know what I'm saying? So it was a, it was a very awkward existence. It causes a lot of difficulty. And Paul says, who's going to get me out of this mess? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to set me free? And he says, it comes through Jesus. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now we go into chapter 8. There is therefore, in light of what he's just said, there is victory through Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those persons who are in Christ, those persons who have been born again, those persons who put their faith in Christ, they have been delivered from condemnation. They are in a permanently positive status with God. They cannot be condemned anymore. They were condemned, but now they are not condemned because they put their faith in Christ. They've been delivered. They've been set free. There is therefore now, currently, no condemnation. None. Because you are free in Christ from that. Because Christ was cursed for you. Because Christ died for you. Because Christ rose from the dead for you. So there's They're outside of condemnation. And only in Christ can this freedom be found. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, outside of Christ, every person is condemned. And they're condemned by two things. Outside of Christ, every person is condemned by two things. One, they're condemned by original sin. And that's Romans chapter 5. Every person who is born under God's Son is a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's corrupted. Original sin. We die the first death because of original sin. The wages of sin is death. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? God said to them, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, die, die. So original sin brings you that first death. And that first death is something that we all have to experience. Now I hope Jesus, my dad would say it like this, I'm looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. He's looking for Jesus to return and gather his people from the earth before he dies. As my dad would say that, he would rather go up than go down, right? That's why we're all here up north, right? We'd rather go up <laughs> than go down, except when the snow gets here. <laughs> so we all face that death that's out there hanging in front of us for, for, because of original sin. But then there is a a second death the Bible talks about. A second death. Remember in Revelation chapter 20, there's that great statement about the the great white throne judgment. When all all the dead are assembled there, all the resurrected dead. There's two resurrections. The resurrection to life and resurrection to damnation. John chapter 5. That second resurrection of all the, the unbelieving dead are raised. And then in Revelation 20, it says that everyone who appears at that judgment, they are judged according to their works out of the books. And then they are cast into the lake of fire for all time. And so we die the first time because of original sin, and that's all of us. We die the second time. The second death comes for our very own sins that we've committed. Nobody gets cast into the lake of fire because of the sins of their father or the sins of Adam. They cast into the lake of fire for their own sins, their own rebellion against God, their own rejection of his gospel, our own stubbornness, our own idolatries. But in Christ, you're free from all that. In Christ, you are free from condemnation. In Christ, you are justified. In Christ, you are as holy as God is. In Christ, you are free. Free for the low, low price of faith. Faith in Christ. 
Now in Romans 8, 2, it says this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It is the spirit that has set us free from this condemnation, not the law. We've been set free from this. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We cannot save ourselves, our salvation, this condemnation-free existence that we enjoy is ours, not through our efforts, but it is ours through the efforts of God himself. For God has done what the law cannot do. We're not saved by ourselves. We're not saved by uh, each other. We're saved by God himself. Now, my friends, I want you to think about that, that God personally, actively saved each and every one of you who are believers through Jesus Christ. They used to sing this song when I was a kid that when, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Jesus died knowing whom, for whom he was dying. He knew his blood was shed for his people, for those who would believe. And God has taken an active role in this. God himself is involved in your salvation. Of course, we're Trinitarians, so we think about salvation in a Trinitarian context. God the Father, uh, God the Father elected the, the Son atoned for, and then the Spirit gathers. The Spirit gathers. The whole Godhead involved in the salvation of sinners. Even little old insignificant sinners like you and me. Have you ever thought about how insignificant you are in the whole world? When I was a kid, I told my mom, I said, Mom, I'm going to go down in the history books. You know what she said? It'll never happen. I thought parents are supposed to support your kids and believe in them and lift them up. You know, when the curves are going, my mom's a realist. She said, you're out of luck, buddy. <laughs> I know your family. <laughs> God has done this. God has saved us. And what God does cannot be undone. So our security for salvation does not lay with us. It is God who has done this. In verses 5 through 6, you'll notice there is a serious absence of personal effort here in salvation. Listen to the reading. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, what, what is the, the active thing here? It's where your mind is at, what you believe. Put your mind on Christ. Believe. There's, there's, no, there's no workings, there's no efforts required. You put your faith in Christ. We believe in Christ. And then in verses 7 through 8, you have this contrast of, of the two minds. That there are two mindsets in the world. And I would venture to say there are two mindsets in this room this morning. There is a mind, verse 7, that is set on the flesh that is hostile to God. Now, I'm, I, used to, I, used to, I used to wish that I could read people's minds, but now I've gotten a lot wiser and smarter and realize I don't want to read people's minds. Because that means they might read my mind and, <laughs> and I'm not that tough. There are probably people here this morning 
who your mind is actually hostile to God. You're not too keen on God. Now, when I was a kid, my, my dad's a Baptist preacher, and my dad drug me to church. My mom drug me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night my whole life. By the time I was 18 years of age, I probably heard, I don't know, 208 sermons a year times 10. That's 2,000. I mean, I, mean I, re- I really learned to hate church when I was a kid. And, I didn't, and my mom would say, put your church clothes on. I hated church clothes. You guys hate church clothes? I hate them. So and I, I, wear, I wear what I wear because I don't want to tell you why. <laughs> I'm, su- I'm a little bit superstitious about it. And if I were, I'm wearing different shoes than normal today. And me and Valerie had a whole conversation about it. She says, is it going to mess up your mojo? And I said, I hope not. Because <laughs> I'm just a weirdo, you know? <laughs> so there is these... When I was a kid, my mom would say, get ready for church. And when I was a kid growing up, we couldn't wear blue jeans at church. You had to wear slacks. And so I knew this was the day with no jeans. We also had this rule, we couldn't wear cowboy boots to church. We had to wear a shirt with a collar. We had to tuck it in. We had to wear a belt. We had to comb our hair and perform our weekly toothbrushing. <laughs> and so my mom would say, go to church. I didn't want to go to church. Because I had to go down there, and there's all those, you know, the old grandmas in the church going, don't you look so cute today? Don't you look cute? And I used to get all, I'd get mad about that. Then I had to go to Sunday school, and I'd sit in church. I'd listen to my dad drone on and on and on. And I just didn't like it. I was hostile to it. And that was just my, that's just the little kid stuff. But then when I got to be 12, 13, 14, there was a different kind of hostility towards God that began to well up where I really became acquainted with my depravity. And I didn't like anything he said. I would endure it. Endure it. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are people in this room right now who your mind is hostile to God. No, and nobody knows it but you and God. But you're against God in your mind. You're hostile to him. You, you reject all his overtures of love. You can't take it. You're barely able to stay in this room. But your mind is hostile to God. And that could be true of a young person. It could be true of an old person. You might be surprised who is actually hostile to God here this morning. But there is a mind that is hostile to God. And then there is a mind that is not. There is a mind that is set on the Spirit. And that mind is life and peace. There's a different attitude towards God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not want to submit to God. Indeed, the Scripture says it cannot submit itself to God. Now, the reason why I could go from being a young teenage boy who loathed church to being a guy who really works hard to get people to come to church what, what causes that kind of mind change? What causes that kind of mindset? You ever had an epiphany? And now you realize, oh, the, the, I see what the problem is here. 
Well, when I was 15 years old, I was in church and my dad was preaching. I have no idea what he was preaching. But during the midst of that sermon, I realized that I did not like God, that I was a sinner, and that I needed to be saved. And that all happened in, you know, in the midst of a, you know, probably a 45-minute sermon. I went there not wanting to be there, not caring about God at all. And then when I left, my attitude was very different about God. Because in that sermon, God, the triune creator of the universe, he revealed himself to me in a personal way. And I came to know I'm a sinner and he loves me. I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner and he'll save me if I call upon him. I realized something about myself. An epiphany, a light went off. A new mind appeared. I received the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit, moving upon me, causing me to see things differently, where my mind stopped being hostile to God and then became submissive to God. I became what you call born again. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that call upon his name, which were born, not of the will of man, not of my will, not the will of the flesh, because my father was a Christian, but the will of God. My friend Don Fortin would describe it like this. He would say, in the time of love, God came to me and showed his love to me. In that special way. And I realized that I I needed him and I wanted him. I began to hunger and thirst for him. And so I got this new mind. There is a mind that's hostile to God, and there is a mind that loves God. There's a mind that is set upon him, that looks to him with joy, that looks to him in faith. And if you're going to have that change of mind, it takes something beyond yourself to do that. It's God who works. Now, the way God works is so... So, well, you'll see. If it ever happens to you, you won't be the same. You won't be the same. And I, and you know, and I can, and, and we, we preach the gospel here all the time because that's the way God's chosen to do it: the proclamation of the truth. The proclamation of the truth. Now, you might be here today and you might be hostile to God and you're like, there's no way he could ever change my mind. You might be surprised. You might be way out there in a deer stand in November wondering why you're there. Looking at your gun, trying to get some cell phone signals so you can watch YouTube while you're waiting on the deer. Sitting in that deer stand and all of a sudden, out of the blue, boom, God can show up right there in that deer stand and change your mind about everything. You might be out there on a fishing boat, fishing, and God visit you. You might be at school this year, sitting in math class, pondering over the, what, what's, a, what's a mathematical thing? A Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> Is that the right way to say that? (laughs) 
<laughs> Didn't have, nope. <laughs> you, might, you might be sitting at Walmart waiting on your tire to get changed. God may come upon you anywhere. You may be at your job putting parts in a machine, pumping gas in a car, and God show up. You may be sitting all alone in your room, laying there in the bed, looking at the ceiling. And because you've heard the truth today, God may come and visit you and show you Himself, reveal Himself to you in a way that will not leave you unaffected. It takes God to do it. And if God does do it, well, your whole, your whole self will be rewired. You won't understand everything. You won't be perfect, but you'll know something big has taken place here. And it'll set you on a, on a trajectory of searching to understand what's happened. Now look at verses 9 and 10 here. Paul, he says this. This is what the minds are like. And then he says, now, but you guys who I'm writing to you, you, however, are not in the flesh. So he's writing to people who are Christians, who are believers. But notice the qualification that he makes. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So you have the mind that's right towards God. You have it if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. If the spirit of God dwells in you, then you have this mind. You can't have one without the other. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The people he writes to, he, Paul feels pretty certain that they are Christians. But he says it takes the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, then this life is in you. And it's not from the flesh. Now, there are... This leads us to a natural question. How do I know if the Holy Spirit is inside of me? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? On, on one hand, I, would, I could say it like this. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as, your, as a source of all your righteousness, if you're trusting Him as your Savior, if you believe He rose from the dead and He's the Son of God, no man, Paul says, no man can say those things except by what? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads people to confess these things. You say, well, okay. Are there, are, are there, any, other, are there any, any other indicators? Well, yes. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit or the things the Spirit produces in us. Now, when you read Galatians chapter 5, this is not a to-do list of spiritual disciplines for you to do. These are the natural outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Galatians 5. And look, look at this little, this little list. You have, you have the two contrasting sides. That later on, maybe you want to go read uh, verses 18 to 20 of Galatians 5, and you can see the contrasting elements. But notice what he says in verse 22, Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. So here are these fruits, these evidences of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's, I don't think the order is really particularly important here, but you'll kind of see there's faith in the midst there. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have faith in Christ, faith in God, then all these other things are going to begin to seep out of you. Now, I say the word seep out of you because they're not always gushers, are they? Now, have you ever met somebody who is a, becomes a Christian on Monday and on Tuesday they're a whole brand new person? Ever seen me like that? I have. And then you ever met somebody who became a Christian on Tuesday, on Monday, and uh, they're not really super Christian on Tuesday? They're still a work in process. Everybody goes at different, at different levels here, making these gains. And I'll use this illustration of my mom and dad. I probably told you it before, but it's a good one. I know it's true, too, <laughs> which is always nice. Charles Spurgeon said, if, you ever, if an illustration's ever, if you're ever doubtful that it's true, don't tell it. And uh, I know this one's true. So my dad became a Christian, and in one night, he knocked off a whole lot of devilment. A whole lot of hell-raising ended in one night. So he, he, tell, he tells how when he left church that night, he drove home and threw away his cigarettes, and threw away his beer, and you know, just, just cleaned himself up, went home and told his dad he was sorry for being a jerk to him, and the whole nine yards. And then my, when my mother became a Christian, it wasn't the same, wasn't the same. When my mama, when my, my mama, <laughs> when my mother became a Christian, uh, she had a much slower uh, progress in the faith, layer by layer, peeling things off, little by little. People, make, people go at different rates. But if it's there, if the Holy Spirit is there, you're going to see some progress in these things. As a few years ago, uh, our, our oldest child, she was saying something to me and uh, she was saying that I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, that, I wasn't uh, that great of a person, which, which probably was true. But I, I told her, I said, you know, I'm not as bad as I used to be, am I? <laughs> and you know what she said? In a moment of complete candor and honesty, she said, you're right. You're not as big a jerk as you used to be. Still a jerk, <laughs> but not as bad as you used to be. Because when you're 20 years old, you're going to be different when you're 40, right? And when you're 40, you're going to be different at 60. And hopefully people will steadily advance towards a, a, a Christian sweetness and gentleness as they get older, as they walk with the Lord. So the Holy Spirit works through us. These are the fruits of these things. Now, the life comes from the Spirit, not the flesh. And then I talked about being hostile towards God. Sometimes... Your hostility towards God can be because you are not a Christian at all. That would explain a lot of people's problems, wouldn't it? But there's a second issue you've got to think about because people who are Christians can backslide away from God. Now, do you guys know what backsliding is? I came up here from the South, and in the South, we backslide. It's like, it's like normal. Backslide. Do you guys know what backsliding is? So backsliding is when you're saved... And then you, you drift away from the Lord. You know, you go to church all the time, and then you start backsliding. You start missing church to go fishing and hunting. And... <laughs> but backsliding, you, you start to drift away from the Lord. You know, you start to miss a lot of church. You stop reading your Bible. You stop praying. You stop tithing. And all, and all that, you stop witnessing. And you just drift away from the Lord. You backslide. And you, and you realize after a while, oh, I've slidden, way, I've slidden far away from God. Backsliding. Now, 
some Christian people, they backslide and they become pretty sorry when they do that. And the reason why you might not be too happy about being at church today, even though you're here, you could be a Christian not too happy about it because you're backslidden. You've drifted away from the Lord. Proverbs 14, 14, in the authorized version, says this, The backslider in heart is filled with their own ways, consumed with self, backsliding. And that, that's kind of a good indicator for being, being backslidden away from God. When you become consumed with you, that's, that's a pretty good indicator that you're drifting away from the Lord. Because if you're close to the Lord, if you're seeking Him, you're consumed with Him. Now look at verse number 11. This will be the last thing we talk about, all right? Otherwise, that's 30 minutes through point one. <laughs> Valerie said that she has a roast in the oven at home. And that was a smart thing to tell me, too. <laughs> Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If you have the Spirit, if you have this mind, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the assurance that you will be resurrected bodily as Christ has already been resurrected. That is in your future. The assurance. If the, the same one, if the Spirit of Him who raises the dead dwells in you, you're going to be raised from the dead. Your mortal bodies will live again. You see, our, our positive status with God doesn't end in our death. It stays with us. We're saved once and forever through faith in Christ. And this resurrection is the most underrated thing in Christianity sometimes. We think about all kinds of things, but we forget about the importance and the glory of the resurrection. Victory over death through resurrection. What is, what is the, when you read Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is talking to the biggest brains in Athens. And he's telling them all kinds of things about God. And when he gets to the end of it, he tells them there's one God who made everything. And when he gets to the end, he says, And this God raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead. And the Athenians, these big giant brains, they, they don't laugh at anything Paul says. But the Bible says when he's talked about being risen from the dead, they laughed at him. They mocked him. Because that was preposterous. How can somebody come back from the dead? This is, this is, the, this is the big thing about Christianity. We have a resurrection theology. Jesus Christ, our Savior, He died. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. And everyone who puts their faith in Him, believing He did rise from the dead, guess, what they, guess what's going to happen to them in the future? They're going to rise from the dead. Raised again for our justification. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the proof that He paid the full price for our sins. And if you have the Spirit, if you've been born again, if your faith is in Christ, you too will be resurrected from the dead. And he'll give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. This ongoing working of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious section of scripture. It says, there is therefore now, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Lord, how do we deserve that? It's just by your incredible, amazing grace that we, that we can be saved. What, what a demonstration of love that you sent Christ into the world to die for sinners. And that mysterious verse, Father, in 2 Corinthians 5, that you made him our Savior to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we, the sinners, might be made the righteousness of, of you. How can, how can it be, Father? Lord, for those who are here today who have that mind of Christ, who, who know you, whose mind is in the Spirit, who is set upon you, I pray that you'd fill their hearts with joy. And for those whose minds are hostile towards you, Father, I pray that you would be yet long-suffering and merciful to them. And that you would reach down from heaven and open their eyes to the truth about themselves and the truth about you and your precious Son. I pray these things in Christ's most wonderful and glorious name. Amen.